Welcome to True Crime Exposed. I'm your host, Kayla Waters, and normally each week we'll be joined by my co-host, Alicia Jenkins. However, she is not with us today or next week, but after that, she'll be around. For this episode, you're stuck with me. And we created this show to give victims a voice back when they no longer have one. And by doing that, we're able to expose the monsters lurking all around us. a new year 2024 we're done with Christmas break we're back into the swing of things and I'm excited to be here with you guys and I'm kind of ready to leave 2023 behind although it wasn't awful I always feel like I have great memories because of my kids and I cherish all the time that I get to spend with them but 2023 was a rough one for me So I'm ready to embrace 2024 and I'm ready to start podcasting a lot this year. I decided to do today's case based off a documentary I watched that totally threw me for a loop. I haven't bawled this hard in a documentary since probably the Chris Watts documentary. This is a truly devastating one and it's different than anything we've covered before. The documentary is on Netflix, and it's called Take Care of Maya. If you have not seen it, you should definitely go watch it after listening to this. The other thing I want to mention here before we dive into the case is that a lot of, I've listened to a couple of things in my research of this case where people We're claiming that most of the media is biased and the documentary on Netflix about this case called Take Care of Maya is biased, Um, but I just have to disagree. I really went through this case basically based on that documentary because I loved that the family was telling their story, that it was straight from the family's mouths, and I want to advocate for the family. I do not think it was necessarily biased because as you'll see at the end of this, a jury found that the family story was correct. And so with that, I wouldn't necessarily call the documentary or other media biased, more so they are telling the correct story. And it's kind of ironic because as we've seen everywhere, it's all over TikTok and all over the news, Gypsy Rose Blanchard has just gotten released from prison. And the case we're talking about today has parallels to that case, but in a completely opposite way. You'll see what I'm talking about as we get through this episode But Gypsy's case is on one side of the spectrum, and Maya's case is on the other. We know that the system is not perfect. There is human error. And while Gypsy was failed by the system on one end of the spectrum, Maya was failed by the system 
on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. With that, are you ready for today's case? Beata Kowalski had moved to the United States of America when she was 16 years old, and her family had come here from communist Poland. They moved to Chicago, where Beata attended high school, and it was at this school that a teacher told her she wouldn't make it very far in life because her English-speaking skills were not great. Jack Kowalski, who marries Beata later in life, says that she was strong-willed and she refused to take no for an answer. She was headstrong, so being told that she wasn't going to make it, that only fueled her fire. Beata went on to attend college at Loyola University Medical Center, where she received a degree in nursing. And once Jack and Beata were married, the couple was excited to have children. Jack says Beata had always dreamed of becoming a mother. She wanted it so badly that she started planning a nursery and buying baby clothes before it even happened. And unfortunately, the couple struggled with conceiving their first child. But thankfully, in 2005, their dreams came true when Maya Kowalski was born. Maya was doted on by her parents. She was put into Polish school and piano lessons. And Beata, like many mothers, she wrote down notes about Maya as she grew, hoping to remember the little things she loved about her daughter as she grew older. Two years after Maya was born, the Kowalskis were blessed with a second child, a son named Kyle Kowalski. And their family was close-knit, they all had a lot of love for each other, Jack was working as a firefighter, and Beata was working as a nurse. They would settle down in Florida. And Jack describes his wife as genuine and magic. The kids were loved and everything in their life felt right. Up until 2015, when at 10 years old, Maya started suffering from extreme bouts of pain. It started on the 4th of July weekend at their home in Venice, Florida. Maya was outside playing with her brother Kyle when she started having a hard time breathing. Beata figured she was having an asthma attack and took her to Sarasota Memorial Hospital. She started complaining of different ailments, and within weeks, Maya became more and more sick. Lesions would appear on her arms and her legs. She was lethargic. She couldn't move her body as easily as she once had. And at this time, Beata is still a nurse, working as an infusion nurse who helped people with their treatments at home. While Jack was lucky enough to be able to retire from the fire station by this point so he could spend more time with his kids. But that time soon becomes centered around Maya's pain and suffering. So Jack and Beata, they start taking Maya to doctor after doctor, trying to figure out what is going wrong. Things were getting worse, and on top of the symptoms of pain and the lesions, Maya started suffering from headaches and blurred vision, things like respiratory distress. Her skin also felt like it was on fire, and her legs start to turn inward at her ankles. She could no longer walk. Doctor after doctor, there are no answers. Beata documents every visit to keep track of what they were being told, how they could help their daughter. Jack remembers her being up into the late hours of the night, researching the symptoms and looking for answers herself. 
One video documentation of an immunologist doctor's visit in October of 2015 shows the doctor telling Beata that a kid might say they can't breathe, but we don't know if they just are having an anxiety attack. When the doctor leaves the room, Maya tells her mom it's not anxiety. Beata tells Maya that the doctor is just trying to figure out what's going on. In 2015, Maya is able to visit Dr. Anthony Kilpatrick. He describes the turning in of Maya's legs as dystonia. This doctor is a CRPS expert, and CRPS, it stands for Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. The way he describes this in the Netflix documentary is that if someone had an injury, we know it will heal up over the next couple of weeks, it gets better. But in a patient with CRPS, their pain does not lessen over time or over a couple weeks. Their pain gets worse and worse. A patient with CRPS will feel like their skin is burning, which matches what Maya described her skin as feeling on fire. This syndrome also presents itself typically in young girls between age 9 and 11. This is the exact age of Maya. After examining and working with Maya, Dr. Kilpatrick diagnoses Maya with advanced CRPS. He explains to Maya's parents that the best treatment for this diagnosis is ketamine. He says that ketamine stimulates the brain in a way that sort of resets everything. The ketamine increases blood pressure, circulation, and breathing, which would be helpful with Maya's respiratory distress. So Maya is prescribed a low dose of ketamine by Dr. Kilpatrick. And ketamine, it can be taken as an infusion or as an oral pill. So at home, she's taking it orally. This low dose of ketamine was not helping Maya's pain, so Dr. Kilpatrick suggests to Beata and Jack a pretty intense and experimental treatment that can't even be done in the United States. This treatment was only available in Mexico. Now, remember here, the doctor, he is suggesting this to Maya's parents. They did not come up with this idea on their own. The doctor is a CRPS expert and he is telling them that this might be the only option left to try and lessen Maya's suffering. The treatment would be a ketamine coma. Ketamine is administered in high doses to induce a coma for around five days. This treatment has been somewhat studied and many patients with chronic pain go into remission following the procedure. This has proven to be a useful treatment for CRPS patients. However, it obviously does have its risks. So ketamine, it's an anesthetic agent related to PCP, so it can cause hallucinations, these ketamine comas are controversial to say the least, and hallucination flashbacks could occur. It may cause arrhythmia, rigid mu muscles, nausea, or even death, as can happen with any anesthetic. 
The Kowalskis are told that there is risk in everything. And Dr. Kilpatrick also said that if Maya continued being unable to move her legs, she could form blood clots that had a possibility of traveling to her lungs. So there was a risk in letting Maya deteriorate and there was a risk in this ketamine coma. What was the best option for their child? They weighed the pros and cons. Maya could not keep living with this pain, so it felt worth the risk. And with that, they agreed to the ketamine coma that Dr. Kilpatrick had suggested. Jack says that this felt like the only option. Do they watch their child deteriorate or do they try anything that might help her live a normal life again? So in November of 2015, Beata and Maya head off to Monterey, Mexico. Maya was worried. Everyone was worried. Was this worth it? Maya cried to her mom in a recording at the hospital, asking if she was going to wake up. And if she did wake up, would she be normal? Beata says to her, you are normal. And when you wake up, you will be very normal. Beata documents every day of the coma with a video diary while in the hospital with Maya. After six days in her coma, Maya wakes up on November 22nd, 2015. Following this ketamine coma, Maya gets better. Her pain significantly decreased, and Maya said that she had some bouts of blurry vision, but that was worth it to get rid of the pain. Her headaches got better, her appetite increases, and now the Kowalskis had this faith in ketamine and its treatment for their daughter. They relied on it. They watched it transform her back into a normal little girl. She still couldn't walk well, so she kept the wheelchair, but she could move her arms and go back to school and play with friends again. The next year was a relief for all of them. Maya continued having her pain treated by ketamine following the ketamine coma. However, the Kowalski family couldn't continue paying for Dr. Kilpatrick's treatments, so he referred them to another doctor who worked with CRPS patients and took their insurance. This doctor is Dr. Hanna. He continued to keep Maya on a daily ketamine treatment. Almost a full year later, on October 7th, 2016, Maya relapsed and the pain came back in full force. Maya cries out that she needs help. There is this pain in her stomach that she could not bear. And at this time, Jack is home alone with the kids. So he calls Beata, who was at work, and explains to her that he is going to have to take Maya to the emergency room. So Jack, he drives his daughter to John Hopkins All Children's Hospital to be seen in the ER, and they're taken back into triage, where Jack tries explaining that Maya has CRPS, and he assumes that this pain is from her syndrome. But the nurse looks at him a bit confused. She actually has no idea what CRPS even is. More nurses come to see Maya, and none of them know or understand what complex regional pain syndrome is. So Jack tells them, okay, my wife is a nurse. She can explain it to you better than I can. And with that, he gets Beata on the phone to explain this condition. Beata tells them about CRPS and how the treatment that has been working for Maya is ketamine. 
With the pain relapsing and coming back so intense, she explains that Maya will need a high dose of ketamine to control her pain. When Beata arrives at the hospital, she is still pushing for her daughter to be treated with the medicine that they have been prescribed for the last year, the one thing she has seen work for Maya. However, the doctors do not take Beata's pushiness too well. They don't like how strong she is coming on, and they don't appreciate being told what they need to do. Beata tells them that they clearly do not understand Maya's condition or how much medication it takes to control her pain. The nurses and doctors here at John Hopkins are not comfortable giving Maya such a high dose of ketamine. And with that, tension between the hospital and Beata grows thick. After being examined in the ER, Maya is sent to the PICU. This is the pediatric intensive care unit where doctors do agree to put her on a low dose of ketamine, but it doesn't work. Beata knew it wasn't going to work because Maya, she was already orally taking this medication at home daily. So if she is relapsed with this extreme pain, she would need a high dose to get the pain back under control. It was frustrating for the Kowalskis because from their perspective, the hospital wasn't really helping their daughter. So they start having discussions about taking Maya home or taking her elsewhere for treatment. And when the nurses and doctors get wind of this notion, the Kowalskis are told that security would be called if they tried to take her home. So the hospital staff, they start coming to a conclusion together. You know, they're all talking to each other. And keep in mind, Beata is from Poland originally, so she does have a strong accent and somewhat broken English. And not only was she being pushy about her daughter's treatment, but I feel that maybe communication wasn't coming through quite how, like, how the staff would have liked to have seen based on how Beata spoke. And I feel like maybe she was being misunderstood or judged harshly because of this. But ultimately, the talk among the nurses and doctors leads to suspicion of Munchausen by proxy. This term was first coined in 1977, and it basically refers to a fabricated illness imposed onto a child, meaning someone is making up this illness or making their child sick on purpose. This is a mental illness of a caregiver and a form of child abuse. So it's a big deal when the hospital starts to think that Beata is making her child sick or exaggerating her symptoms in search of over-medicating her. The hospital staff at John Hopkins All Children's Hospital does not believe that Maya has CRPS. They believe she has Munchausen by proxy, meaning she has a fake illness being perpetrated onto her by her mother. Doctors believe that Maya is faking this syndrome and that Beata is over-medicating Maya. There is a deposition done of many of these doctors, and they explain their thought process. Dr. Lalay Bar-Posey claims that Beata's main concerns were to make sure that Maya was given ketamine. She didn't like that. She said that Beata wanted Maya to have more and more and more of this medication. From the doctor's perspective, Beata was belligerent and demanding. 
There is another doctor, pediatric physician, Dr. Beatrice Tepa Sanchez, and she also saw Beata as controlling. She claimed that Beata would tell her, this is what you're going to do. Dr. Sanchez thought that Beata wasn't concerned about the effects that ketamine could have on Maya. Dr. Farhan Malik, who was a pediatric cardiac ICU physician, said that once the ketamine administered in the hospital was not working to control Maya's pain, they all started to doubt the diagnosis of CRPS. And once Beata started talking about leaving the hospital with Maya, he felt that Maya was unsafe. He explains in his deposition that if you have a suspicion of child abuse, then you are required as a doctor to contact CPS. And this is true, and it obviously is necessary. If you've been listening for a long time, you know that my mom, our co-host, she is a nurse practitioner in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, alongside my stepdad, her husband, who is also a neonatologist, a doctor in the NICU. So they work with premature babies, and unfortunately, many of those babies are born to mothers who have consumed drugs during pregnancy. That's not all preemie babies, but oftentimes, when you are using these drugs, it can cause premature labor. So if the umbilical cord tests positive for a drug, the hospital staff is required to contact CPS and thankfully so. This way CPS can step in, they can make sure that the baby is going to be taken care of and that the mother can receive the help she needs. So like my mom has had to do this many times and it is necessary. And even from her perspective, working one-on-one, she does believe the system is broken because unfortunately children are failed all the time. So doctors and nurses, they can be a very important part of trying to save a little child's life by recognizing the signs of abuse or someone who's not able to take care of their child. However, they are still humans and that does not mean that they are always correct. With any CPS reporting, there can be mistakes. Sometimes people are not reported who should have been reported, such as, you know, Gypsy Rose's mom, who I talked about in the beginning, who just got out of prison. You know, Gypsy, I think, was maybe reported to CPS once or twice. Well, Gyp, not Gypsy, her mom was reported once or twice and they did come to her house, but they didn't find anything wrong where she should have been taken out of her mom's care. And that was not a situation Gypsy, Gypsy should have stayed in. And honestly, a lot more doctors should have reported the mom. But then there's the opposite side of the spectrum where people are reported that should not have their children taken. Children can be taken from their family when they shouldn't have been. It's called human error. And as much as I wish these cases were black and white and they played out perfectly for every child every time, that's just not the case. I personally don't know the solution to lessening each side of the spectrum, but I do know the system is not perfect and we always need to continue refining it. So with that, we'll move on in this case. So the hospital, 
they start having this suspicion of Munchausen by proxy. And with that, they call in Dr. Sally Marie Smith, who is a child abuse pediatrician. She comes to Maya's room and talks with the family for about 10 minutes. She is asking Jack how he could allow someone to give his child such high doses of ketamine and he's kind of taken back like it's because that's what they've been prescribed for their child's diagnosis they have no idea who sally smith is or what her purpose talking to them is but after doing her assessment the kowalskis are asked to leave the hospital as maya is going to be taken in to state custody jack and beata are floored they're confused. They couldn't stand the idea of their child being isolated in that hospital away from them while enduring so much pain. It seemed cruel. So they immediately went to an attorney who is Deborah Salisbury. In the deposition of Sally Marie Smith, she explains that Dr. Hannah had prescribed Maya 1,000 milligrams of ketamine daily and that this is not routine ketamine dosing. Sally explained that she felt Beata was the main perpetrator of abuse onto Maya. Now, Dr. Hanna also has a deposition, and he testifies that Maya had received 55 infusions of ketamine from January 2016 through October of 2016, plus a prescription of oral ketamine to be taken at home. This was prescribed to Maya by him, and he explains that he has patients taking up to 1,500 milligrams a day and that every patient with CRPS is different. What worked for Maya was 1,000 milligrams over four hours. Dr. Kilpatrick, who first diagnosed Maya and referred her to Dr. Hannah, caught wind of what was going on with Maya at John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. So he decides to get in touch with Sally Smith himself, and he explains to her that this really misunderstood and not well-known syndrome is real, and Maya has it. Dr. Kilpatrick tells Sally Smith what diagnosis he has given Maya and how they have treated it. He also tells her that if she decides to go forward with removing Maya from her parents' care, that it would be a permanent injury to Maya and the family, which would be absolutely needless since Beata and Jack have only followed doctor's orders. However, Sally Smith makes a report for the court just a couple days after this conversation, but she doesn't mention any of the conversation with Dr. Kilpatrick. Attorney Deborah Salisbury explains that in Florida, the child welfare system is privatized. So when Sally Smith reviewed Maya's case, she was employed by Suncoast Center and they are there in Florida. And this center assists in investigating child abuse cases in Pinellas County, which is where John Hopkins All Children's Hospital is located. And this is where Maya is. So Deborah says that children in Pinellas County are two and a half times more likely to be removed from their homes than the state average. Deborah refers to the child welfare system now as the child welfare industry. She doesn't have a great view on it and she feels like it's odd that children are removed so much more often in Pinellas County where Sally Smith 
covers all the Pinellas County cases. Sally Smith says that the reason her their children are removed so much more often is because her team does a better and more thorough job. So Deborah Salisbury, the Kowalski's attorney, she explains that CPS started back in the 70s where kids were being removed from homes for being beaten, having broken bones, sexual abuse. But in recent years, this new thing called medical child abuse is being brought up more and more. She says that many families are targeted by this when they've taken their kids to multiple doctors, when they're looking for a diagnosis, and because of this, they could be accused of doctor shopping. Deborah says that Beata could be a little too direct. She was very straightforward, and Deborah believes some doctors took that offensively, and that all that comes to happen comes from someone being offended. So just hours after Maya was taken into state custody, Beata does call the hospital and she records it. She asks to speak with Maya, but they tell her no. And she says, quote, so I cannot even speak to my daughter. And then she asks if Maya was given her pain medication. She says that if her daughter requests to speak with her, she should be allowed to speak with her mother. She tells the nurse that she doesn't want her child to suffer. This is still her child. And she was just really focused on taking care of Maya. She was pushy. She was pushing for that pain medication. And Jack, her husband, he was taking a different approach. He kind of sat back. He was trying to let it all ride out. He didn't want to bother anyone at the hospital. And he knew that Beata being pushy was rubbing them the wrong way. So the couple, they end up disagreeing on how to handle this situation. And some of it is caught on a recording when Jack is telling Beata on that recording where she says, so I can't speak to my daughter. Jack tells her, like, hang up the phone. And when she's off of the phone, the recording's still going. And he tells her to stop the bullshit because he wants to see his daughter again. He tells her he's not going to do this and that she should not call the hospital anymore asking about the pain medication because it's going to cause more problems. He tells her she's not getting it and she says, quote, no, you don't get it. I can ask any question I want. But he believes they're going to hold it against Beata if she continues calling like this. Their son, Kyle, can be heard on the recording, and he says, quote, I love you, Mommy, but can you please not do what he's saying? Please listen to Daddy. And Beata says, he's not always right. According to the Netflix documentary, Take Care of Maya, the first phase of in court where they're trying to take a child is the dependency, in a dependency case, is the shelter phase which this is to decide where a child will be placed. So Deborah Salisbury says during this phase, there is a lot of hearsay that is allowed to be presented. This doctor said this, this doctor said that. And Deborah says this makes it very easy for the state to win the case. 
Beata tells Deborah on the phone that one of the nurses accused her of giving Maya IVs at home of the ketamine. And remember, Maya was prescribed oral ketamine at home, not infusions. So Beata, she had told the nurse, like, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. And when Beata is telling her lawyer about this, she calls the nurse a, quote, liar and a freaking asshole. The lawyer tells Beata that it's important she tries to remain calm since the hospital is basically only pointing the finger at her and not at her husband, Jack. The next day, they have that shelter phase hearing. And during this hearing, the judge issues a no contact order between Beata and Maya. Jack, he can resume visiting Maya in the hospital, but Beata cannot. I do find that a little crazy because Jack and Beata, they live together. They're married. They both agreed to all the previous care that Maya had. They both agreed to the ketamine coma. They both agreed to give Maya ketamine at home. Jack is the one who brought Maya into the ER in the first place and was the first one telling them she has CRPS. But it's because Beata was so pushy about it, all of the blame falls on her. So with this news that she can no longer speak to or see her daughter, she passes out, she smacks her head on the floor, and she has to be taken to be seen. Now, once Maya is in state custody, her treatment plan is changed because, again, the hospital does not believe that Maya has CRPS. They believe that Beata was making up this diagnosis. So during that hearing, Beata is also issued an order to have a psychological evaluation done. And she does this on December 5th, 2016. And guess what the conclusions were? They were that she did not have Munchausen by proxy, but that she had an adjustment disorder with depressed mood due to having Maya removed from her care and taken into state custody. Now, while all of this is going on, the Kowalski family, they have a family advocate to kind of help them through this journey. They're, you know, like given one through the court system. And Again, Beata is recording all of the phone calls, all of this process, and she has a phone call with the advocate. And the advocate tells Beata she has to understand that these cases are not fair. She says that she's done 60 of these cases from the parent perspective and that cooperating with the state is the best way to bring your child home. Beata replies like, no, no, I'm not going to do that because the hospital has no idea how to treat my child's condition and I want my daughter to be treated. But the advocate says that once the case has started, none of that really matters. Judges don't care if the hospital was wrong, but they do care if the parent is going to put their child in danger, which obviously that is what the court should care about if they can put their child in danger, but saying that none of it really matters anymore. I mean, Maya's treatment and care still does matter. But the advocate reiterates that the best way to get a child back is to convince everyone that you have changed your mind and that you are going to do what they tell you to do. Then when you get your child back, 
You leave the hospital and you never ever go back. Beata says, quote, so I'm going to sit back and watch my child deteriorate more. And the advocate says, quote, what other options do you have? She suffers now for a little while and eventually you get her back or she suffers forever and you never get her back. Maya was 10 years old when she is taken into state custody. She was never told why they were not letting her talk to or see her parents, but she did hear nurses talk about her. She heard nurses say that she was a liar and to not believe her. She doesn't have this syndrome that she claims to have. She heard them say things like her mom was crazy and making all of this up. Maya remembers feeling confused and helpless, like no one was really listening to her. Now, Jack, we know he's not being targeted. He was more quiet. He sat back. He tried to just let it all ride out. So even though he lives with Beata and you know, was a willing participant in Maya's care, he is eventually able to go visit under a lot of roles. He couldn't talk about Beata. He couldn't talk about Maya's treatment or condition. So Jack just has to visit her without saying anything while he watched his daughter's health go downhill. He says she had more lesions, her feet were turning inward more, and she was weaker. Now, when he came home, of course, Beata is like, how did it go? How was Maya? What is she doing good? But Jack was too scared to say anything to Beata because he didn't want his privileges being revoked. If he told Beata that Maya was weaker and they weren't treating her, Beata probably would have called the hospital. And Jack just didn't want to take that risk. There is a text exchange presented in that Netflix documentary between a doctor and Sally Smith. And it reads, Doctor, FYI, I just went to see Maya. I watched her use her feet to push herself several feet in her wheelchair in her room. Sally Smith replies, Fortunately, at 10 years old, she can't perform the charade effectively 24-7 and doesn't even know if she's making physiological mistakes. I'm coming to take some pictures of her affected legs for court on Tuesday. She has physiological and affected in quotation marks. Maya says that when CRPS is left untreated, it is almost impossible to improve. So even though during Sally Smith's deposition, she claimed Maya was getting better and gaining weight, the reason that Maya could use her feet to push herself in her wheelchair some days and others not is because this is a chronic pain condition. It changes daily. Maya says some days are better than others. She can move better sometimes and other days she can't move at all. Dr. Kilpatrick says that after a few days at the hospital, they were refusing to give Maya ketamine and he had seen this before. He says that as movement in the legs becomes less and less, that's when you get the blood clots that can break off and go into the lungs and could be fatal. So he kind of fueled Beata because he relayed this information to her and how serious it was that the hospital was not treating her. He warned Beata that Maya would, quote, die a slow, painful death if left untreated. 
So obviously this does not help Beata's anxiety and her pushiness to get her daughter care. When Beata is finally able to talk to Maya over the phone under very strict guidelines, social worker Kathy Beatty is in the room. Catherine Beatty is, mm, I don't know about her. So Jack, he said right off the bat, something just didn't seem right with Catherine. So they Google her and they find out that Catherine was arrested for child abuse. It turns out she had grabbed a boy's head, causing him to fall down. She placed both of her knees onto this boy's chest and the boy's face turned red and he couldn't breathe. Kathy told him like, yes, you can breathe, you're fine. But there were a bunch of other employees there. I believe this is at the Suncoast office where she must still be working at this time, which is super strange. It's Suncoast that Suncoast office that works with um, child protective services that Sally Smith works for. So her, the other employees are the ones who call the police and Catherine Beatty is arrested at 46 years old. And that's just crazy to me that she was working at Suncoast. The employees call the police because they feel like she's abusing this little boy. She is arrested but because the charges were later dropped, Catherine still works for Suncoast and is still involved in taking children from their parents. She just doesn't seem like the right person for this job, but what do I know? I don't, I don't know. So Maya, she says that Kathy told her she was going into a foster home Kathy told her that her mom was in a mental institution and that she herself was going to end up adopting her. And in her deposition, Kathy says that she did have Maya sit on her lap and she did hug her often. Catherine says that this is because they provide comfort to the children as they are being, you know, removed and going through this huge transition. And she said at that time she thought Maya did like her. However, sometimes Maya was very upset with her because Kathy was the face of what was happening to her because she sat in there every day with her. And Jack and Beata, they really didn't like that Catherine Beatty was the one sitting with their child day in and day out because from the report of her arrest, it didn't seem like she treated children all that great. So as they're going through this case, risk management decides to make this decision to take pictures of Maya for court. Um, and this is through, you know, the child protective services. So they take pictures of Maya in her sports bra and a pair of shorts. She did not want this happening. So they had to hold her down and they took pictures of her face, her legs, her arms, and her stomach all while she was screaming and yelling no and kicking trying to get out of their grip but they did go ahead and take the pictures anywhere anyway and in Catherine Beatty's deposition she's asked did you guys ask the parents for permission to take these pictures of their child and she says no they did not ask for the parents permission so on November 29th, 2016, Maya had been in custody for 47 days by this point. 
And of course, Beata is recording every single phone call she has. And there is a recording of this phone call with Maya where Maya is telling her that her pain is really bad, that she cries all the time in the hospital, she wants to come home. And Beata tells her that she's very sorry and she wishes she was there to rub her back and hug her. Maya cries saying that Thanksgiving wasn't good since she was alone in the hospital. And Beata says, I know, it was the worst Thanksgiving ever for me. Beata tells Maya she's sorry and to be strong and that she prays for her every day. Now, after this phone conversation, Kathy Beatty accuses Beata of being inappropriate during that phone conversation. I don't know why. It could be because also in that phone conversation, um, Beata asks if she's been able, if Maya's been able to talk with her own attorney because Maya received her own, you know, like attorney and advocate. And Maya says she's not able to call him because she's not able to call out of the room. And Beata is like, what do you mean? You can call him anytime you want. You are not a prisoner. You are not in a Nazi camp. Like she just gets kind of frustrated because she's like, you are not in prison there at the hospital. You can call and of course, Catherine is like, mom, mom, stop, redirect, redirect. And so because of this, you know, she wants Beata's privileges to be suspended, her phone privileges. And Jack says that this absolutely devastated Beata. There's a letter Beata later writes that reads, quote, I cannot live like this any longer. They are evil monsters and they are destroying me piece by piece. So the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office, they end up starting to investigate the case as well. There is a pending criminal investigation now. So Jack talks with Detective Stephanie Graham. She says she was investigating child abuse. So in Stephanie's deposition, she says that her and Jack had a very pleasant conversation, but in court, audio is played and you can hear that she asks about this relationship with his wife and she starts asking him if they disagree on Maya's care and Jack is like, no, he knows his wife. He tells her about how Beata is always researching and trying to listen to the doctor's orders and do everything she can for Maya. But then Stephanie is like, well, is Maya faking this disorder to try and please her mom? Like it would make her mom happy for her to be sick. And Jack says, God, I hope not. And then he tells Stephanie that intentionally Beata would never hurt her children. He swears on his life. He says he loves Beata and she is a pushy person and that pushiness is getting much worse at the moment because she does not want to cooperate, but she is a good person. Now, Stephanie tells him that someone is looking at criminal charges in this case. So she asks Jack, are you protective or are you complicit? He says that he is protective of his children. And Stephanie questions him, are your children truly your first priority? He says, yes. 
So Stephanie asks, if Maya was released tomorrow, would you be compliant if that child was not allowed to have any contact with her mother? Jack says yes. Now, Deborah Salisbury, the Kowalski's attorney, she says it's pretty obvious that Beata, they wanted Jack to turn on Beata, and he couldn't have said anything else. The only correct answer to Stephanie's question was yes, that he would be compliant with her not having contact with her mom because that was the only way he would see his child again if that's the direction they're going. So Jack says that he does go home and he has a conversation with Beata. He tells her about talking to the detective. He tells her about the conversation and how they are trying to place all the blame on Beata and that he agreed that if they sent Maya home with him, that he wouldn't let her have contact with Beata, which is wild to me that they're even asking this because this couple is married. They live together. They have another child. So they have one child in state custody, but the state is letting their other child be home with them. So it's the three of them at home. But like, how do they expect Jack to keep Maya away from Beata if they do send Maya home with Jack. Beata lives there. They're basically asking, will you divorce your wife for your child? It's just wild to me that it's being blamed on one person when they are together, they're married, they live together, and they still have custody of their other child together. So by December 15th, 2016, Maya had been in custody for 63 days and Catherine Beatty claimed that Maya was moving around the hospital just fine. She was using her hands and her legs. She could play the piano. And again, Maya says, yeah, it's a disease. Every day looks different. Some days she could do things and other days she couldn't. Now, Catherine Beatty, in her deposition, claimed that Maya never showed some of the symptoms they saw in other kids who had chronic pain. Now, according to Dr. Kilpatrick, CRPS is very misunderstood, and maybe this is why Catherine Beatty feels like the symptoms are different than what she saw in other kids, since those other kids likely did not have CRPS. Maya ends up writing a letter to the judge in her case, and she writes, Dear Your Honor, Love Maya. She tells him she wants to go home. She's feeling awful, she's getting worse, and all she wants for Christmas is her family. She tells the judge that she cries every day and that she never got to say her goodbyes to her mom because at this point her dad is going and visiting her. So it's her mom who she hasn't been able to see for 63 days. She tells the judge she prays every day to go home. It's so sad to think that this little girl is just stuck in this hospital by herself with a visit here and there from her dad, that's all. Now in the middle of December, there is a status conference that is held. Varenia Van Ness, she comes on to the defense as co-counsel and she's talking to the judge. She says that this child was diagnosed by a doctor with CRPS and prescribed these medications and that the parents were treating their child and it's their right constitutionally to treat their child as they see fit. 
Now, it's Judge Hayworth on the case, and he says, he tells Varenia Van Ness to, you know, take it down a notch. And he says she might have been diagnosed by Dr. Kilpatrick and Dr. Hannah with CRPS. But then on the flip side, they had Dr. Sally Smith testifying as well, who is saying something different is going on here. Deborah Salisbury explains it as this huge power struggle. And the court would often side with the hospital staff and Dr. Sally Smith, which is the most likely they are going to usually side with those people. So Maya's attorney, like her own personal attorney, then asks if just momentarily Maya could see her mom. Maya really wanted to see her mom. She wanted to give her a hug. But the judge replies, I'm afraid not. Not today. Deborah says, it makes no sense. Why was Beata and Maya denied this right to give each other a hug? Leaving the courthouse that day, Beata was devastated. It's the only thing she talked about the whole way home. And Deborah says that the one thing she knows to this day is that, quote, None of us can get that hug back. That hug is gone. So a couple weeks pass and we come to January 8th, 2017. By this time, Maya has been in state custody for 87 days, almost three whole months. And that day, Beata, Kyle, and Jack are planning to go to their neighbor's kid's birthday party. But just before the birthday party, Beata tells Jack and Kyle she doesn't think she can go. She has a really big migraine and she's just going to go sleep it off. So Jack and Kyle, they go to the party and when they come home, the bedroom door is shut. So they don't want to disturb Beata in their sleeping. So they sit down and they're watching some TV. When a little later that night, Beata's brother, Peter, he comes to their door. He comes inside and he's kind of walking around the house looking for Beata. Now, when he walks into the garage, he lets out a scream. It's a scream that Jack will never forget. Peter screams Jack's name in Polish. And Jack says the scream was so loud, he just knew. Jack calls 911. Beata has hung herself in the garage. During that 911 phone call, you can hear Kyle crying in the background, mommy, no. She was 42 years old and Kyle keeps screaming, mom, mom. Jack said he knows it's because that judge turned her down. That was all she talked about. She just wanted that hug with Maya. And now Jack had no idea how he was going to tell Maya that her mom died and then just leave the hospital. Before Beata took her own life on January 8, 2017, she wrote a letter for Judge Lee E. Hayworth. Quote, Your heart is made out of iceberg. By taking the side of ACH and DCF, you have destroyed my family, my marriage, You have put us into bankruptcy, and you still denied me to see my daughter in court today. Further, you let them continue to destroy her even more, slowly each day, 
My daughter will never be who she was before October 13th, 2016. I hope you will take responsibility for my daughter's worsening. Beata also wrote a suicide letter, a goodbye note, and it reads, quote, Please take care of Maya and tell her how much I love her every day. Please tell Kyle also that I love him very much, and I hope that he grows up to be a strong, good man, has a future, and stays close to God. I'm sorry, but I can no longer take the pain of being away from Maya and being treated like a criminal. I cannot watch my daughter suffer in pain and keep getting worse. It's been three months today of Maya not being home. I love you all, Beata. So while this is unlike any case we have ever covered and Beata was not necessarily murdered, I do feel like she fell victim to the system. And that is the reason her life ended. There is a text exchange between doctors that is shown in the documentary. The first doctor says, Learned today that Ketamine Girl's mom committed suicide yesterday. Sorry to say my prediction was correct. Doctor 2 says, OMG, this is terrible. I know we did the right thing, but this is really fucked up. I feel bad. Doctor 1 says, I had a... I had another mother do the same thing. We definitely did the right thing for the child. Shortly after Beata's death, they allow Jack to take Maya to see a specialist in Rhode Island. Beata's out of the picture, so they just let Jack take her. And this doctor is Dr. Chopra. And he determines that Maya does in fact have CRPS and he sends his report to the court. Soon after, they release Maya back into the custody of Jack. So after Maya is released in 2017, she was not allowed any ketamine treatment. So even though this doctor did say she had CRPS, the court still made Jack follow what they wanted him to do and he did. So he said it took over a year of intense physical therapy to get Maya into crutches from her wheelchair. It was about another year after that that Maya could finally walk, but was still in a lot of pain. And through physical therapy, she is able to use her body more, do more things, but she can again relapse at any time. Dr. Kilpatrick says that Maya can walk now, but still has impairments in her lower extremities and that she will have to live every day with the CRPS diagnosis. Jack says that it's difficult to understand what went through Beata's mind, thinking that her taking her own life was the only way to get Maya back into their care. And... He says that while he misses her every day, he also has anger here and there that she left them all behind. In 2019, Daphne Chen, she is a reporter that is covering child welfare in Sarasota, Florida, and she comes across Maya's case. She decides to take the story on, so she talks to the family, she talks to Dr. Sally Smith, and Dr. Sally Smith tells her that 
she did absolutely nothing wrong. But she, Daphne Chen, she finds that Sally Smith's opinion was very different from Dr. Hannah and Dr. Kilpatrick, who Daphne also talked to. So she writes up this article on the case and she publishes it. And after she publishes, she gets something she does not expect. Many calls and emails coming in from other families in Pinellas County who read the article and had the same experience with specifically Dr. Sally Smith and the same organization, Suncoast. These were parents who had kids with seizures, kids who were sick, people who took their kids to the hospital for different ailments. And the common link in all their cases, all the ones who emailed and called Daphne Chen, that common link was Sally Smith and John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. All of these families say that Sally Smith had a 10 minute conversation with them and afterwards their kids were taken into state custody. Some of them were arrested immediately afterwards. And it turns out that Sally, she does almost all the evaluations at all children's hospital for these child abuse cases. Sally Smith, she says she feels she is reasonable and doesn't set out to tear families apart. Now, this is a hard case because, again, like I said earlier, there is a need for these doctors to advocate for kids. And if a child is being abused, they absolutely should be taken out of their parents' care. I think the problem here is when you are proven wrong, when you see that you're wrong, but you refuse to back down. You know, Beata had that psychological evaluation done. They said she did not have Munchausen's. She had multiple doctors backing her up that said they gave her child the diagnosis of CRPS, that they prescribed her this ketamine. So when Sally Smith was proved wrong and Beata was not being unreasonable with her requests at the hospital, what should have happened is she should have backed down. The hospital should have seen that they were wrong due to all the evidence that proved Maya had this condition, but they didn't. And where they kept moving forward is where they went wrong. I'm okay with people having their suspicions. If you have a suspicion of child abuse, please report it. It's not wrong to report it. I think it's wrong when you're proven otherwise to keep moving forward. So Maya, she remembers, you know, the way that they would talk about her mom in the hospital and it was sort of traumatizing for her. They tried convincing Maya that her mom was making it all up. They tried telling her that her mom was crazy and Maya only knew her mom as loving and compassionate and an amazing mother. So it was very frustrating for Maya to keep hearing these things about her mom in the hospital, but she says that she kept it all in because she was raised by parents who taught her to be respectful. There's another text exchange between doctors and Sally Smith who were texting that's shown on this documentary. One doctor texts Sally Smith and says, 
FYI, we were able to move her to a video room last night. Apparently, she's currently sitting in bed with her legs crossed and has a laptop on or something propped on her lap. Sally replies, we may need to try and monitor what she's doing online. I wouldn't put anything past her mother. Now, we know through this telling of this case that Beata documented everything. Every phone call, every doctor's visit. And this is the reason that after Beata's death, they can sue the hospital. Because when the hospital says that something wasn't said or they did something differently, they play the recordings and they show exactly what conversations were had, how everything was being played out. So in order for the Kowalskis to sue all children's hospital and others involved for the wrongful death of Beata and the traumatization of Maya, Jennifer Anderson becomes their attorney. And she says that most parents don't have the ability or the funds to fight back, so they enter into a case plan, just trying to get their kids back. Now, the parent, the, the case plan is when the parent chooses to go along with whatever the state requires of them to regain custody. And many of these parents say it's just more simple to go through the case plan, even if you're innocent. But when you sign that case plan, you are releasing the hospital of any liability. The Kowalskis, they did not take a case plan because Beata refused to cooperate or say that she was wrong. Jack said that Beata would never have done it. She knew she was right and she wanted to fight. So now the Kowalskis are suing the hospital, Dr. Sally Smith and the Suncoast Center. They are suing for the infliction of emotional distress because they claim that they knew they were pushing Beata towards emotional harm. Maya just wanted everyone to see that they, that she wasn't lying about her condition, that her mom wasn't lying, that this was injustice. And then five years since the filing of the lawsuit had gone by, and it takes over their entire life. Jack, Kyle, and Maya are completely entwined in this lawsuit, and they just want it to be over. Maya also now basically refuses to go to hospitals. She barely wants to go to the doctor's office. And she just, she doesn't like that environment anymore after what happened to her. The court system and civil suits are a slow process. So all of these years are passing by. And in April of 2022, on April 4th, they are supposed to pick a jury and then be in trial following that. And the Kowalskis are ready. They are so sick of waiting for this, this trial to go to court. Now, something that their lawyers had found as they started digging into the codes that were charged to Maya's insurance by John Hopkins Hospital is very interesting. The hospital billed the insurance for three months of treatment of CRPS, which at that same time, Sally Smith was telling the courts that she that Maya did not have CRPS. All of the nurses and the doctors in their depositions would say that they didn't believe Maya had this condition. However, John Hopkins was billing the insurance all that time for treatment of CRPS. So 
the Kowalski's lawyers are like, the hospital's going to have a really hard time defending that. And they do actually have a very powerful legal team, though. John Hopkins hired a former judge from the Second District Court of Appeals that sits above the trial court. So they're supposed to go pick jury April 4th and then start the trial. But on April 1st, 2022, just three days before jury selection, the Kowalskis are called by their lawyers and they're told that they received an order to stay the trial, meaning to push it off yet again. Their lawyers tell the family that John Hopkins is trying very hard to keep this case out of trial because it's going to be a tough one for them. So on April 5th, 2022, the Kowalskis are granted a court date just to plead their case to continue the trial starting the following day. But Judge Hunter Carroll does not grant this. They do stay the trial. They push it off. And the family had all written statements for the court, but they were not allowed to be heard. And Maya says she's mainly going to court for her mom and this was just a huge punch in the gut they go home and the kids are crying on the way home it's being recorded via you know the documentary because the documentary team team was there and jack on the car ride home he says that they're heartless bastards and they'll always continue to beat them down he says they don't give a shit and when they get home, the whole family goes their separate ways. Jack tries to console his kids. Kyle cries that this will never end. They just want it over with. They want to stop thinking about it. So Jack says to the documentary team that if they give up and shut their mouths, it will happen again. To another family, it's only a matter of time. And he doesn't want that to happen. He's going to keep fighting for justice for Beata. Daphne Chen, the journalist, she says that many families are just stuck for years, many years, battling these accusations. Sometimes the families, some of them may be in prison battling these accusations for years. And she says that what the Kowalskis are doing by suing the hospital and suing Suncoast and suing Dr. Sally Smith, what they're doing is standing up for those wrongfully accused that have, and this is such a thing, like such a shameful thing to be accused of that most people just keep it very secret. But the Kowalskis want their voices to be heard. They want Beata's voice to be heard and they want Maya's voice to be heard. Now, at the end of the documentary, Maya says that she wants to speak, but she's having a hard time without crying and that she hates crying. At this time, they edit an audio recording from one of the phone calls between Beata and Maya. It's okay if you have to cry. It's, it's normal. You have to speak for yourself now because mommy is not there. Just close your eyes and pretend I'm there. I know it's not the same, but just be strong. If you're watching this, Mommy, I want you to know that I love you. Send you kisses. You'll know it's from me. 
Following that edit, Maya reads a letter she wrote to her mom. She tells her how much she loves her and she misses her and she wishes she was here. Now, back in December of 2021, Dr. Sally Smith and the Suncoast Center actually settled their portion of the lawsuits with the Kowalskis. So at this time, they were just waiting to go to trial with John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. And on October 7th, 2022, the Second District Court of Appeals approves the Kowalski's request to pursue punitive damages. And a trial date is set for September 11th, 2023. So that's why they had stayed the trial earlier and pushed it because they needed the Second District Court of Appeal to, uh, you know, decide on if the Kowalski's could pursue those punitive damages. Now, Judge Lee E. Hayworth, he issues a statement for the documentary, and he is the judge who denied that hug between Maya and Beata. And he says, quote, at all times, decisions regarding family contact between Maya and her family were based on the testimony and strong recommendations of a well-credentialed physician and hospital employees who, at the time, presented as experts in their respective fields. A judge's decision can only be as good as the information he or she is provided and must be based on the quality of evidence that appears trustworthy. Which I can agree with that statement. I don't necessarily blame him. I wish that he would have allowed Beata and Maya to have that hug. But again, he can only go on what he is being presented. And obviously their main concern is the child. Uh, it It's really sad what happened. Um, but yeah, I don't know how to feel about his whole thing um, but I, I can't agree with his statement so ultimately John Hopkins All Children Hospital goes to trial with the Kowalskis and a jury finds them liable for extensive damages in this malpractice lawsuit the hospital is ordered to pay 211 million dollars plus $50 million in punitive damages. The claims in this case were false improvement, medical negligence, fraudulent billing, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and wrongful death. They are found liable on all counts. And now the hospital afterwards starts objecting to the payout saying that the claims were put forward as one big allegation which misled the jury to award the family too much money because in total they're they're getting 261 million dollars the kowalskis and by november of 2023 johns hopkins had filed a retrial of the case because they're saying the family got too much money the jury was misled and then on top of that they claimed that there was a juror's wife who had shared information on social media paul lengel was the juror who was questioned about this sharing of information with his wife and it turns out she had like gone to the trial every day like and watched as the community can and you know she shared her thoughts from that but there was no information shared between this juror and his wife she just literally went to the court herself and so 
Judge Carroll, he is the one who questions Paul Langle, and then it only takes minutes for him to determine that the court would deny a motion for a new trial based on juror misconduct. And John Hopkins is ordered to pay the money. And this is why when people say that the case is, like the documentary is is biased or the media is biased, it's biased because it's right. A jury found that the hospital was liable, that all these people were in the wrong. Suncoast and Sally Smith settled with the Kowalskis. They knew they didn't want to take it to trial, probably for this reason, because you see that John Hopkins completely lost. And so I guess you could call the documentary or the media bias, but I would just call it correct. It is correct. A jury found that it is correct. And the family, I am so thankful they won that they finally got their day in court um, this past year, but it will never bring Beata home. And her death was so unjust. She was a victim of the system. And I'm devastated for her kids that she did not get to be around for the rest of their lives. Thanks for listening. I research, write, host, and edit this podcast. Our co-host, who wasn't here today, is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters, and all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Make sure to look us up on Instagram at True Crime X Pod. That's True Crime E X P O D. You can find us on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast and on Facebook under Kayla Waters.